You are listening to the Bellator Christi Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Hello, Brian. Hey, Curtis. How you, how you doing, brother? Doing good. Doing good. Hey, uh, I see we got the uh, addition of uh, some cri- contributors on uh, Bellator Christie. Absolutely. We have uh, VT Clark. She published her first article on uh, Bellator Christie today. It is a uh, it was a book review and uh, and and uh, of of a book that she had uh, read. I'm not very familiar with the book. Uh, I'm, um, it's Idols and uh, uh, let's see if I have it here. Idols and images and idols. Images and idols. Yeah, I, I'm not very familiar with that book, so that that one was a new yeah. one uh, for me. But she did a w- wonderful job on there, and uh, uh, it was uh, a real fun times. <laughs> In fact, we had an interesting situation because this is the first time. Uh, I'm, it's kind of a learning experience for me too because uh, this is the first time we've had different users on the uh, on the website, and so uh, she was working. She had just finished her. Uh, uh, edited her article and I was going to look through it and see how it looked so I was on there and then Jason Klein who's also on board he, he came on and knocked me off and I said hey Jason I got to check hold on a second I got to check something so I ended up knocking him back off so we had kind of <laughs> tug of war there for a little while <laughs> trying to get the article uh, the, the little details of the article finished but we, we, we got it out there in the, in the end and so, <laughs> so uh, it was a fun it was a fun experience <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Jason Klein, he's a editor and a moderator for, uh, for the website. And, uh, so he's going to be who we go through to, uh, publish things, right? Absolutely. And, and this is to basically help me out because, uh, there may be times where, uh, people may be submitting articles where I may be away from, uh, my desk or, or, uh, in Lynchburg or somewhere like that. And, and so, uh, have, and also sometimes just having an extra pair of eyes is very yep. helpful. And so, uh, um, yeah, he, he's agreed to come on and edit for us and, uh, um, and, and just, again, just give us an extra set of eyes on, and, uh, on the articles that come forth and, uh, uh, just looking forward to it. We've got a great team. Kevin Croyder, uh, he's a great guy in, down in Florida, uh, a real good guy. He's a pastor of a Bell Glade Christian Alliance Church in Bell Glade, Florida. Uh, he recently lost his grandfather, so we do ask for prayers uh, for him and his uh, and his family as they're going yeah. through a difficult time right now. But we've got a we've got a great staff, and uh, and and most importantly, we got uh, Curtis Evelo. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Trying to trying to trying to uh move this podcast along and and uh, be able to answer some of these questions that people have and people throw up and and on it's I think it's going to be um quite fun uh being able to kind of toss these questions around at each other and even maybe uh chew on them and and revisit them again maybe uh you know month or so down the road just to uh maybe put a capstone on some of them or be able to maybe open it up for a little bit more dialogue with uh, with people so i'm looking forward to it i think it's going to be great absolutely well uh we got some questions here and a couple of them are going to be you know might take a little bit of uh time to explain um and to get through but uh we got we got some good ones here so um let's get into it uh, if you're ready for it absolutely all right i've got the first uh set set of questions here came in from uh, a gentleman named named uh ben nengo um and uh he said uh pastor brian hope all is well uh can you assist with the following questions uh name the types of literature found in the bible number two occupations or types of people found in the bible uh, number three, state types or illustrations found in the Bible. Uh, and number four, conditions under which the Bible was written. So let's visit the first one. Uh, name the types of literature found in the Bible. 
this is this is an interesting uh, interesting question because this is actually something uh, we cover in the book, the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics, right. in yep. one of the later chapters. Uh, so I, I won't go into too much detail uh, on this, but uh, but I, I will kind of go through the general genres of literature that we find um in, in in scripture this is actually a really good question to, and um and, and something that i think is important for us to be able to dissect and and look through uh and accurately handle the word of truth um right. first of all we have the genre of law and uh, we're talking about the first five books of Scripture, particularly Exodus through Deuteronomy is where we find the law of God. And right. th- there's a particular way that you interpret this because some of these laws, being in the New Covenant, may not necessarily apply to us because, for instance, we don't sacrifice goats and lambs uh, anymore because we understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God now. Mm-hmm. But um, there are three categories, generally speaking, uh, three categories of uh, laws found in, in the law. Uh, one is the, uh, the first is the civic the, the civic laws, these are the laws re- relating to how people uh, were good citizens in the, in Israel at the time. And we're talking about the time of Moses, uh, early in the history of Israel. Uh, mm-hmm. You also have ceremonial laws. These laws are talking about uh, different ways in which people worship, sacrifices, things of this nature. And then thirdly, you have moral laws, how how people should live and, and treat right. one another and how they relate to God. What's normally, most uh, biblical interpreters will, will tell you that uh, the best way to interpret this passage of Scripture and make it relatable is to find the moral law in, uh, in the law that's given. So even some that may not seem like we could find any application whatsoever, if you look deep enough, you'll find a, a moral that God is trying to teach the people of Israel. And so that's something I think that... Uh, is important when we when we interpret the law to uh, find some modern applications in that realm. Um, right, right, yeah. And um, one one thing I kind of maybe add a little bit to that, Brian, is uh, is uh, keep in mind um, that uh, the the law or these laws were put into place by God to separate Israel. Yes. separate them from the other cultures that were around that were doing all sorts of things that were uh, vile and detestable to God. And God says, I need you need to separate you. I want to separate you and show that that there's a moral law behind this. There's a uh, there's a protection I have and it keeps you from being part of them. Absolutely. Even in the ten plagues, when you take a look at the ten plagues uh, in in the book of Exodus, uh, God is speaking against the um, he, he's speaking against the different deities in Egypt, and mm-hmm. and you're right. At these laws, even even the dietary laws, uh, they were given to separate them from. Uh, from other nations that may have had some inclination with hooved beasts and things of this nature, uh, mm-hmm. and different birds of the air. Uh, some of them may have been worshipped. Some of them may have been used for other practices. But but whatever the case, whatever the case may be, the most important thing was, as you said, to distinguish them between the people of the world. They were to be different, to 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 be a holy people uh, called unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so what what are some of the other uh, types of literature? Absolutely. Secondly, we have what's called a historical narrative. This constitutes the largest segment of Scripture, uh, about 44%, if I'm not mistaken, I think, uh, of Scripture is found in the historical narrative. This this is actually, I think, the, the most fun uh, genre of all, and um, I think it's the easiest to find applications because people learn by history. People learn by telling mm-hmm. stories. And so right. in historical narrative, you're looking for who's the character who's the hero of the story who's the good guy who's the bad guy what's the setting what's going on how do how does god interact with the people and what kind of moral can you find in the story and and 
these these are these are good stories. You find stories like Sam, of Samson. You find stories mm-hmm. of Samuel. You find uh, uh, stories of Daniel and the lion's den, and and many others. This would fit into what would constitute uh, the historical narrative segment of scripture. Right, right. and it's and it's one that's uh, proven uh, is is start is proven time and time again um, archaeologically. Um, you know, through um, through certain digs and and stuff, you're they're finding things that relate to the stories in in uh, historical narratives. Oh, absolutely! Even in uh, the Layman's Manual of Christian Apologetics, I talk about a, uh, an archaeological. Well, I don't know if you even call it really an archaeological finding. Well, I think you could. <laughs> they they with Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, where they mm-hmm. uh, they found. Uh, shards of uh, pottery that had turned to glass and to produce mm. that that had been, had been a high level of heat that produced mm-hmm. something of that nature so you know mm-hmm. the evidence is there that something disastrous struck Sodom and Gomorrah and just so happened that it fits the timeline of the Bible so who would have thunk that <laughs> right. but you know right. there's all kind of evidences that, that go forth uh, that uh, um that, that, that prove the Bible. It's like Randall Price said in once before, he said that uh, the the, the archaeology just uh, is, will eventually catch up with what the Bible's been saying all along. Yeah. And, and yeah. so I, I think he's right. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, uh, um, the Pool of Siloam, they found that, um, yes. and and the and the road going to the temple, the the basically the the walkway, the pathway going to the temple, and they found. Uh, you know, bells that were on the priestly garb uh, garments that were, uh, you know, as they're walking to there. Um, so, yeah, the, as they dig more and more up, as they find more and more, um, you know, we found they found the city of David. Um, it, it's it it becomes quite uh, impressive the the stack of evidence um, that the Bible holds true in this historical narrative. Absolutely, absolutely. Thirdly, we also see the the uh, second largest segment of scripture, which is poetry. We find this in Psalms as well as uh, as many of the prophets write in in, in uh, poetic form. And and th- this this topic actually uh, would deserve a podcast on its own because there are certain <laughs> meters, uh, there are certain types of uh, certain terminology that are used. There are several different categories of Psalms, uh, like you see Psalms that deal with theological issues. Uh, there's psalms that deal with trust, the trust that God had, the people having God. Uh, some some are like theology books, so to speak, because they talk about certain attributes of God. Psalm 139 is an example of that, where he talks about uh, the um, the omnipresence of God. Where can I go from your spirit that you're not already there? Uh, mm-hmm. Talking about the omniscience of God before a word is even on my tongue, you already know all about it. In mm-hmm. Psalm one thirty nine verse four, so uh, you have these you have these psalms. You also have the imprecatory psalms where people are struggling with some major issue and they're crying out to God, Lord, avenge me, uh, you know, avenge this issue in my life. And um, so, so that's that's the poetic form. The prophecy is a fourth one. Uh, with prophecy, you uh, there are two types of prophecies. One are the one is the well. Actually, let me go back and rewind that and say, prophets do two things. They are both foretellers and foretellers. Their foretelling ministry is looking to something that'll happen in the future. And uh, obviously, we think about the messianic prophecies, and there's certainly plenty of messianic prophecies within the prophets, especially Isaiah. Uh, you also see, um, but you also see that they have this foretelling ministry. And in this regard, they are um, preaching out against some sin that the mm-hmm. nation is doing at that time. They're modern-day preachers. They, they are saying, mm-hmm. hey, listen, you've messed up. You need to repent or God's going to bring judgment. It doesn't have to come, but you got to repent. you got to change the way you're living. And so uh, that's, a, that's actually, when you look at the prophets, the forth-telling ministry, it's interesting. You, it's almost like sometimes you're reading the the daily newspaper when you read them in that fashion. Right. Yeah, and you hear, uh, like for example, in Jeremiah, you know, he he's calling uh, Jerusalem to hey make changes now, <laughs> make the changes now. Uh, and he didn't have uh, he preached for I don't even know how long uh, what his year span was, but 
um, he preached and didn't have any converts as far as we know. Oh yeah, and even if he even if he did the same thing with Isaiah, even if they did, they may have had, they may have had just a handful, uh, yeah. which would have been kind of like a remnant of people who listened. But the vast majority of people would not have listened by our modern standards. We would have deemed Isaiah and Jeremiah. We would deem most of these prophets failures, but what they said were true was true, and right. uh, and came about just as the Lord had told them, and so. Sometimes it's not about how many numbers we have. Sometimes I think the application there is it's about obedience. Whether people, whether we are a Billy Graham and we have many converts, or we're just, we just have a few. And another thing I think is very interesting. You were mentioning Jeremiah, Amos, talking about the minor prophets. If you have, if a person out there hasn't read through the minor prophets, oh man, you need to make sure you go and do so immediately because there are some powerful prophecies amos is one amos is uh i'm gonna tell you what he is a one of the boldest preachers i think in the entire bible he goes up to a wealthy group of women in a town of bashan and calls them fat heifers now you have to be either a lunatic or emboldened with the holy spirit to be able to do that yeah. So, so you know, so these prophets—they're very interesting guys. Um, and, and in the Old Testament, I have to say that some of these, some especially some of these minor prophets, have become quickly become uh, some of my favorite books in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, very yeah. interesting indeed. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking with a friend of mine. I said, like, "Wouldn't you like to have uh, Ezekiel as your uh, as your neighbor?" <laughs> <laughs> that would be very fascinating indeed. Walk, walking around with a fry pan over his face. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't he the one that li- that uh, was yeah. laid down on his side for yep. so many years and yep. made these little toys? <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting dude. Yeah, most certainly. But then we go to the New Testament, we see the uh, four Gospels, they're considered a genre of their own called uh, biographies, Um, and with these biographies, the the main difference between them and and historical narratives is that instead of talking about a large group of people, the uh, biographies are centered upon one person. Of course, we know that uh, that person is Jesus Christ, and so um, the four Gospels are concentrated on his life. Uh, Acts would be considered historical narrative, so that's not a new genre there. But you do have new genres in the epistles. These are letters to a group of people. That's how they differ from individual letters. Uh, And so one of the things that's important to understand with uh, epistles is trying to understand the circumstances behind the writing. Who is it that's writing? Who are they writing to? Uh, and and what's going on, and so that's really important when you when you study these epistles, to to find out what exactly is going on. Why was this this letter written, or why was this epistle written, and mm-hmm. then um, and then lastly you see the uh, genre of uh, of uh, apocalyptic literature, which is very fascinating. Um, Revelation would be considered apocalyptic. Uh, portions of Ezekiel and portions of Daniel would be considered apocalyptic. The difference between prophecy and, and apocalyptic literature is that prophecy is 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 uh, talking to a people who have done wrong. Judgment's coming. With apocalyptic literature, it's a little bit different. Apocalyptic literature is actually supposed to be encouraging. A lot of people are afraid of the Book of Revelation; they're frightened of it. But it's actually meant to be an encouraging piece of literature because it's written to people who are suffering who were undergoing some intense persecution, basically saying that what you're enduring now won't last forever. In the end, God God wins, and so your your afflictions are just temporary. So a lot of times uh, symbols are used, and uh, they're, they're used to... Uh, Sometimes to to protect the identity of certain people. Sometimes they're they're used to explore uh, different theological insights about God in the end times. And one thing one thing I I tell people when they study the Rev- Book of Revelation is to just to understand that sometimes it's difficult to put spiritual things in a in a physical way. So mm-hmm. sometimes the only way we can do it is using symbols. Uh, that people would understand. So, uh, th- those those are basically the different genres of literature. Right. Great, great. Let's get on to number two. 
occupations or types of people found in the Bible? <laughs> this is an <laughs> this again would take an entire podcast if we were going to answer that uh, you know in great detail. I, it's it's difficult to answer this question because you have a wide variety of people uh, writing different books in the Bible. I mean, you have uh, you have some some guys are prophets. Um, uh-huh. so, some some guys like Jeremiah. Parts of Jeremiah was written by Jeremiah. Parts of Jeremiah was written by Baruch his scribe. Um, you, so you have prophets writing down Samuel. I think is probably responsible for a great deal of uh, of of scripture. Uh-huh. Uh, you also have Moses, who who wrote down, I believe, the uh, majority of the first five books. Joseph. Um, it's interesting because the evidence seems to suggest now that that er, an early form of Hebrew may have been the first written language, and just emerged during the time of uh, around Joseph's time. So it's uh-huh. interesting. Um, uh-huh. So Moses would have certainly been able to write. Joseph would have certainly been able to write, read and write. Uh, they could have documented things. Samuel would have done so. Da- David is a king. Uh, he wrote down a lot of things. Again, you have prophets which come from different backgrounds. Some were priests. Isaiah and Ezekiel were priests. Then you have Amos, who we mentioned before. He was a tender of uh, sycamore figs. So he was a good old. He was a good old country boy. You know, really, yeah. quite frankly. And yep. again, going back to Amos, his story is interesting because he goes to. Uh, the city, and he's met with this city priest named Amaziah, and he says, well, why don't you go on home, you old prophet? And he said, well, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I heard the voice of God calling in the wilderness, and I was going to obey. And so um, you have guys like that. Uh, New Testament times, you have Matthew, who would have certainly been able to write down the words. Matthew would have been the last person you would have ever wanted to be an author of the gospel. So I'm surprised people argue that Matthew couldn't write, have wrote the first gospel because he would have been the last person. I mean, Judas Iscariot would have been the only other person worse than Matthew to label yeah. because he was a tax collector. Um, Mark, we're not really sure what he did. We do know that he wrote down the uh, testimony of, of Simon Peter. So when you read the gospel of Mark, you're reading the testimony of Simon Peter. Luke was a physician. He was well-trained. John, um, John, I, I have no doubt in my mind, either wrote the gospel or had a scribe. You know, Curtis, I'm really, it just it aggravates yeah. me to no end for people saying that John couldn't have written the gospel for two reasons. One, uh, well, three reasons. One, if you lived around a synagogue, you could have learned to read and write because, because that's where education was found in the ancient yeah. time in the synagogues. Two, um, that they they say that he couldn't have written right because in the book of Acts it says that he was an unlearned man. Well, think about this: between yeah. thirty, let's just say thirty A.D. when Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected. I think it's thirty three, but just say it's thirty. John was written in eighty five A.D. You're talking about what fifty five years? You know, certainly within fifty five years, somebody could have learned to read and write if they wanted to. And then thirdly. In ancient days, you had professional scribes. So even if you couldn't read or write, you could have still have written a book if you hired a scribe to write down the words for you. So these excuses people give saying John couldn't have written the fourth gospel, they're really ludicrous. And I think a close, careful reading of the fourth gospel shows that John the Apostle wrote the gospel. Paul was on his way to being the Sanhedrin. He was a highly trained guy who could have easily written the letters he did. A lot of times he employed scribes, even still, to write the words for him in a lot of the epistles. Uh, Peter wrote down uh, the the, uh, letters bearing his name. James, brother of Jesus, wrote down letters. So he was, he, uh, was a man of notoriety. So you have several different occupations. Most people in biblical days, if you're talking taking a look at the common ordinary citizen, most people were farmers or fishermen. Uh, right. That's what the majority of people did in biblical days. Right, and you got you know, like you said, Luke being a physician, um, and they also say that Luke uh, um, was was a uh, man of of, of excellent um, uh, geography. Oh, absolutely! Write, you know, write down 
certain points, uh, uh, you know, to, to actually direct people's attention to specific sites. So, yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was Sir William Ramsey who said that that uh, that, that uh, uh, Luke was on par as far as the level of Greek that he was on par with being something like the ancient classics, like Plato's writings, mm. like the Republic or something of that nature. I mean, almost to that level. I mean, he he wrote with exquisite Greek, and um, you know, and and that's that's the reason if you learn Greek that you start with John and you end with Luke. Because there's just that big of a difference between the level of Greek that's used in mm-hmm. uh, in in the writings, and so yeah, I mean, so uh, uh, Luke is an interesting gospel, very very historical, very chronological. Uh, yeah. It's it's a it's a very interesting gospel, very right. good. Yep. No, it's all Greek to me. So. <laughs> all right. Uh, once you state the types of. Uh, uh, of illustrations found in the Bible. So I went back and asked him about this question because I really didn't understand what he was talking about here. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, 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 this is going to be a simple the simple answer. I think there are some typologies that you find in the Old Testament that, that are types, like with Abraham and Isaac, when Isaac wells up and he is going to be sacrificed, but God provides a lamb. That's signifying... If you want to use the word illustration, uh, you mm-hmm. you might could say that, but it's signifying the type of death that Christ would die. Uh, there's deep theology found in that story, uh, pointing to Messiah that's to come. Uh, right. So, if you're talking about that, you have those illustrations. You have, of course, in Psalms, you have different types of poetry and things of that nature. But as far as illustrations. I think the best illustration you could talk about would be the parable uh, that's used by Jesus, if if that's what you're talking about. So yeah. I really, I was talking. I actually went back and asked him what he meant by this, and so I, I pretty much got the impression that that's what he was asking. So you know, there are parables, there's sto- different stories like that in the Proverbs. You have different stories like that as well, but so. I, you know, I, I, I guess that would be how we would answer that. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, you have right. parables and you do have some illustrations in that regard. I mean. Right. Yeah. And, you know, illustrations, um, you know, I guess the, the way I kind of I took that was uh, um, like in um, like in Joseph's time. Uh, you know, in in, jo- in the story of Joseph where uh, his his brothers, you know, sell him off. To a different country, you know, and uh, put them in a pit, and and so what's the illustration there? Well, the illustration is, you know, a parallel to to Jesus, you know, and and his and what he's going through or has gone through. Absolutely, so, yeah, that's that's a good point too. So yeah. I mean, you can go and find, and that, that kind of goes back to what you know to these typologies. You find different examples throughout. The Old okay. Testament that that depict certain attributes that the Messiah would have when he when he finally when he finally came. So, um, right. so yeah, I, th- I think you definitely have that in the Old Testament. You know, we we kind of we kind of call this um, in in uh, in our church kind of just what we talk about is we call it uh, types and shadows. So, um, if you think about it, uh, the shadow on the ground is not. Um, is not the real thing, but it it identifies the real thing. It it shows off the real thing. So if you're standing there, it's going to show a shadow of Brian Chilton, um, and so that's and that's kind of what uh, some of the pictures or some of the stories that are in the uh, in the Old Testament what those actually reveal. Um, Christ is hidden within a lot of those things. I think you're absolutely right, and I think there's an excellent point to be made there, and I think that's why um, that a lot of people didn't see some of the things about Christ because they were veiled, so to speak. I mean, they were there, and if you were looking for it, you could find it, but they were veiled uh, from from what most people would have looked for in a Messiah during that time. So I think that's a great that's a great point to be made. Right, right. Well, number four. Uh Conditions under which the Bible was written. Uh, yeah, so the, here, here's this. 
<laughs> this 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 is very uh, difficult to answer because you're talking about a book that uh, was written over the course of 1500 years. So I've got a timeline uh, pulled up here. So uh, uh, and we'll kind of go through that and give just a few dates and just kind of give an overview, kind of letting you know the background of what happened when the Bible was written. So you have creation, whenever that happened, uh, and then you have during that time the fall of man. Um, uh, then you have a flood. Uh, you know, I, I I tend to think it was a global flood. Uh, some people yep. think that it was a regional one. Uh, yep, I mean, right. I'm not going to split hairs over that, but I tend to think it was global. But uh, I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you go to. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, moving on. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so you have a flood there. You also have the Tower of Babel uh, that that uh, that happens, and so we we really the farther back you go in the Bible, is is the more difficult it is to pinpoint dates, as is, as is true with anything in history. Uh, but then around uh, say twenty one hundred years, and I'm following the timeline I have here on Logos Bible Software. A little before 2100 BC, you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob mm-hmm. around 2000. Joseph, mm-hmm. the, this is the patriarchal age. You could also include um, Job in this period of time. Job is perhaps one of the uh, oldest books in the Bible. In fact, I, mean, I, I believe it probably is the oldest book yeah. in the Bible. So yeah, that's that's what I've that's what I've taken as that as yep. So, so you have the patriarchal period where you have uh, individuals who were, by and large, nomads uh, wandering around. This ends with Joseph. Joseph, uh, what what his brothers intended for evil, God meant for good. Uh, the famine uh, broke out across the land. Joseph was elevated to a, a level of great prominence, and uh, his family in Israel came and was spared. Uh, but the unfortunate thing about that is that they eventually ended up under Egyptian slavery. Uh, this will lead to another instance that happens where um, the uh, the the emperor of the time thought that uh, the Hebrews were growing too numerous and would take over, and so uh, he ordered that uh, the young males be killed. And uh, Moses, mother's, Moses's mother, put him in the Nile River. He was picked up by um, the uh, an Egyptian princess, was spared. The mother was allowed to be a caretaker for him. So God worked that out in the end. Now this timeline is going to say the 1200s. I think it's older than that. I think the timeline actually matches better in the 1400s with Amenhotep. The second, rather than Ramses, I believe Amenhotep the second is the uh, the Pharaoh of of the Exodus, and not Ramses the second. I got to be careful because I know we're running down on time. But man alive, I got to say, a lot of scholars say, well, the evidence doesn't match up for the Bible. But the problem is that they're looking in the wrong timeline. When you go (laughs) back and look, yeah, exactly. When you go back and look at uh, Amenhotep the second. And the period of time there, it matches the biblical story very well. There's a movie, if you get a chance to see it, called Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus Controversy. If you get a chance to see that, that's a wonderful movie, and it lays it out really well. But anyhow, so during this time, God calls Moses at the tender age of 80 years of age to go and call the people out of Israel. And so there's another story there that if... You're ne- it's ne- you're never too late to serve the Lord, no matter what you've done right. in life. If you commit right. your life over, even at eighty years of age, God can use you for some great things. So, so He does. He calls the people out of uh, of, e- of Egypt. They go across in the wilderness, forty years wilderness wandering. Should have took them just a few months. But because of the rebellion, it uh, took them 40 years. They finally settle. Moses dies. Joshua leads them in uh, the promised land. Over time, uh, they they start straying from the will of the Lord. Then you have the days of Judges, uh, which the nation of Israel goes through some very bad times, and that shows you what it's like whenever a a nation doesn't follow the will of the Lord. Uh, Around 1020 B.C., you have Saul coming along. Samuel anoints Saul. He's the king. David comes along in 1000 B.C. You have a united kingdom. They do very well. He is succeeded by his... uh, Succeeded by his son Solomon. They do very well until Solomon dies in 922. Uh, during this time, uh, he has a son called Rehoboam, named Rehoboam. 
Rehoboam is told by the leadership you need to release, you know, you need to back off some of these taxes, uh, or because the people can't bear them. He doesn't do it. the The nation splits in two. So you have the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, this goes on until uh, seven twenty. What was the number? We said seven twenty two. I think. Uh, 722 BC, you have prophets like Amos and others, Obadiah, that's talking, uh, telling the northern kingdom, you better get things right, or God's going to bring judgment. They don't listen, so Assyria comes, and they overtake the nation, and this is where we talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel. What happened to them? Were they integrated with Assyria? Don't know. I mean, most likely they were. But uh, so you're left with the southern kingdom of Judah. You have guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, most of the prophets coming along and they're saying, repent uh, or or Babylon's going to come and exile you. They don't listen. 589, it comes about where they do. Uh, Jeremiah says that there'll only be 70 years in exile, and so they are. During the exile, you have people like Daniel and the three Hebrew uh, children, uh, and they're going through this difficult time. Uh, the exile uh, eventually comes to an end when uh, Persia overtakes Babylon. Uh, during this time, you have uh, Esther is written. She is a Persian queen uh, who helps the the uh, the Hebrews out of the Israelites at that time. And so around uh, around this time, around uh, let's see here, uh, four fifty ish somewhere along in this. Uh, maybe a little bit older than that. You have uh, the the uh, around four hundred maybe. Uh, you have uh, the uh, restored area uh, you, during this time. You have Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra. Basically, what happens is Persia releases Israel to go back to their homeland. Some people don't want to go because they're comfortable in in Babylon. But uh, God is leading the people to go back and rebuild the temple. And you have guys like Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, Joel. All these guys are are saying, "Listen, you need to rebuild the temple." But during this time, you have guys like Zechariah, Joel. Joel's calling about for a new covenant that's going to come when people would be anointed. Every person would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. Zechariah sees this individual come who would be both priest and king. Um, and so you, you have this prophecy. And the Old Testament ends with Malachi who says the, prophet, the Messiah is going to come, but he is going to be preceded by a forerunner. And that forerunner would be John the Baptist. And then you go on into the New Testament time. Uh, then you have uh, an interbiblical period. So then you go to about, people believe that it was about 4 B.C. or 6 B.C. that Jesus was born. They didn't, uh, when Gregory instituted the calendar, he tried to get one as, there is no year zero. So it goes from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. He tried to get it to where, um, where the birth of Jesus would be 1 A.D. Well, he kind of missed it by a few years. But so about 4 B.C. to 6 B.C., Jesus was born. Uh, he was crucified, died, buried, and resurrected uh, on either 30 or 33 A.D. I believe it's 33. Um, but I do that partially because of the 70 weeks prophecy found in Daniel. I also think it matches in some other aspects as well. But from 30 to... Um, 33 to 85 A.D., or around 90 A.D., you have the New Testament that's written as the, the church is growing. Uh, they met, they're met with some persecution, but the persecution really comes about towards the end of the century during the time of Nero and Diocletian. Nero was a fruitcake, and Diocletian <laughs> was too. I mean, so these guys were nuts. But uh, and, and, and really, Nero is, uh, in Revelation, he is kind of... Whenever they talk about the Antichrist, it's almost as if the mm -hmm. Antichrist is going to be the second coming of Nero. Nero right. was just that bad. So this kind of gives you a little bit of a background about the biblical time period. So you have kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling. You have, it's, I mean, some of it's like the days of our lives are a soap opera mm -hmm. because there's a lot of things going on during this time. But the interesting thing through it all is you see the sovereign hand of God guiding history, leading us to the new covenant, leading us yeah. to the outflowing of the Holy Spirit and to the Messiah who uh, took our sins upon his back, was died, crucified, died, buried, resurrected on the third day, according to the scriptures. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. Well, that's good. 
So here's another question, and we are pressing down on time, so um, <laughs> we may have to just kind of breeze through this fairly quick and then maybe come back, touch on it again uh, some other time. Uh, we'll make a note of that. Absolutely. Uh, so um, we've been asked this question, how does faith blend with reason? Uh, we found three approaches that uh, was mentioned by Carl F. Henry, <clears throat> Tertullianism, uh, Augustinianism, and Thomism. You want to go ahead and give us a kind of a rundown of some of those? Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you said, this is an issue that would probably, I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast just on this topic, and quite frankly, we might need to. Uh, I, I'm actually doing a presentation for a, a class I have up at Liberty on this issue, and, and hopefully here within a month or so, I'll have a lot more information to uh, to to do a more thorough examination of this of this. But Carl F. H. Henry he talks about. Uh, in his book, God, uh, Revelation, and Authority, uh, in one of the chapters, he talks about three methods that people use as it comes to uh, faith and reason. And uh, the first one, as you mentioned, was Tertullianism. And Tertullian, he, he was kind of skeptical as to how much reason and faith could blend. He's the one who asked the question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? I mean, Athens was the philosophical mm-hmm. capital, and then Jerusalem was the, the center of faith. So what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? So he saw that reason and faith really had little to do with one another, almost as if it was antagonistic. And kind of interestingly, um, is is similar to the anti-intellectualism we see in many mm-hmm. with many people in the modern day church where mm-hmm. why do we need to have philosophy or why do we need to have these different issues why do we need to talk about apologetics so he takes kind of that approach he kind of sees faith and reason as being opposed to one another augustinianism comes from augustine of hippo and he has the idea that um, that that faith can inform our reason. So so the starting point is faith. And this is kind of what Carl F.H. Henry is arguing, that it almost leads to a type of presuppositionalism where where revelation is the only way we can know anything. You know, we couldn't know anything unless God told us or God unless God gave us the capacity to know anything. And so this this faith that we have, this this revelation that's found in God it informs our rationality. So, revelation informs us of how we can know certain things. So, our reason flows out of revelation. And so, Thomas Aquinas, he's the third, the third guy here. Uh, he he has uh, the, uh, the 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 thing called the the view called Thomism, and he says that men men and women are rational creatures made in the image of God. And so because of that, we are born with innate, an innate sense to reason and to use logic. Uh, not that it comes from us, but because it comes from God. It was given to us because God is logical. God is the unmoved mover. And so he is the reason why any of us have reason, uh, reasoning capacities. So there are certain things Thomas is going to say that we can know about God through natural revelation. So, and this is kind of what Paul says in Romans chapter one that there's no one right. with without excuse, because everyone can look at creation and realize that there is a God. Uh, was it Psalm nineteen or Psalm fourteen? I think Psalm nineteen yep. says, "Yeah, the, your heaven, your heavens declare our maj- your majesty." Absolutely, absolutely, yep. the glory of God. And then the the fools have said in his heart, "There is no God." So there is a sense, Thomas Aquinas says, that we have this natural revelation where we can know certain things rationally about God. And and then eventually that this reason is going to inform us uh, when we, we, we have that special revelation, which Thomas Aquinas also agrees with this, that we have special revelation, things revealed to us by God, that that opens up our understanding of who this God is. So we can know that there's a God by reason, but we can know the God by our, by revelation. So it's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And mm-hmm. so 
it's almost as if Thomas Aquinas says that we can know, we we could we could come up to the gates of heaven uh, with reason, but but uh, but special revelation is what it lets us, lets us inside. And so uh, he he believes that reason and revelation go hand in hand. Um, yes, there is special revelation. It's by this special revelation that we know God, that we have this special relationship with Him. But there are certain things by natural revelation that we can know and understand about God, and this is open and accessible to everyone. Right, right. Well, I mean, could this even play back to um, even when you go and look at uh, all these other um, areas, all these other uh, places across the world after the Tower of Babel, um, things got dispersed, and um, we we have pockets of, of different, uh, you could say, nomads or, or tribal people um, that that all had an idea of God and were worshiping God in their in their ways, but but um, they they needed the special revelation uh, of Christ to get get there. Absolutely. And I think there's a passage of scripture, um, maybe Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, I can't remember, where it says something about the fact that God has created us with eternity in our hearts. Mm. And and when you look at uh, Paul's teachings in, to the Athenians and uh, other such passages of scripture, he says that uh, that that God is all around us, and you know, and it talks about the the. Now, obviously, God is the one who extends grace to us, and He is the one who allows us to have faith. I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to enter into some type of heresy by saying this, but there is. <laughs> there is Jason Klein. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there, there is this aspect where where people do seek after God uh, because there's this need for a fulfillment, but. Um, but you, but you know I, I think that's what Thomas I think that's the what Thomas Aquinas is arguing and uh, Carl F H Henry is wonderful he argues for Augustinianism this man has a masterful grasp on how culture has changed our understanding uh, over time that, that we're here where we are now not just overnight that this has been a this has been a this has been something that's happened for a long time to get us where we are so I'm not knocking Henry in the least bit. Uh, I really enjoy Henry's writings, but I think he may have missed the mark when it comes to Aquinas because he was really critical of Aquinas, and I think unjustly so. I, I'm a big fan of Thomas Aquinas. I think he had a lot of things right. And there were some things I would disagree with him on, but uh, mm-hmm. there are more things that I would agree with him about than, than things where I differ with him. Right. Yeah, and, you know, uh, Paul, um, when he was up on Mars Hill, he's talking to all the all the philosophers there and he says i i've been around i i've been around your city and i see all these all these idols and all these gods that you have but i see there's one that you have the sign that says to the unknown god and yes this this god that i'm talking to you about that's that god <laughs> that's you funny know? you mentioned that that's that's going to be the passage of scripture for for uh, this sunday's message and you're right so, so there, there, there's an inclination for us to worship something. The question is, what are we worshiping? Right. And most of us nowadays, our culture actually leads us to worship ourselves. Um, and actually, uh, there's worship of, of uh, um, this, this want to uh, everybody agree with me. Absolutely. Um, and, that's, and, and, that's, and that's where we're at today down a dangerous road so yeah um so i think maybe uh maybe we ought to spend some time uh looking into those those three um three points um a little bit more maybe in the next couple of weeks maybe in a month or so we'll we'll come back and recover those things and i think uh i think it'd be kind of a fun one to kind of a you know to really dive into absolutely because i think that these three these three models we we find today just as much as we did uh, back in ancient times right and i was just going to say i mean there's a lot of that that um as as we're going through it um if we can find maybe um 
tag phrases or tag words that we can actually um, categorize under some of these, uh, like Tertullianism. We can we can categorize under all three of those. Maybe maybe we can do something like that. So absolutely. Well, Brian, it's been good and it's been fun, and uh, I think uh, we uh, we'll come back and visit next week. Um, so uh, today we want to close out, and uh, we at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value your time. Our prayer is that this podcast podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is reliable for its information source. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, soldier on, friends. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com the opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates the Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under creative commons copyright all rights reserved the opening theme is the song crucified written by John and Michaela Limanis performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. It's my privilege to announce to you that the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available on Kindle. So you can get the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics in all formats now. It's available on Kindle, as well as paperback, hardcover, and you can also find it on the Nook at barnesandnoble.com. So please go and order your copy today and share it, or maybe you'd like to share it with a friend. Whatever the case may be, help us as we get the word out and let people know that we have a faith worth believing in. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christian Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristie.com and the Bellator Christie Podcast.